Imagine, if you would, the setting, which would be first century Jerusalem, and it would be Passover, and historians would tell us that there could be upwards of two million people. A small city, a great city, but a small city teeming with upwards of two million people. It's Passover. You're excited if you're a kid. You're excited if you're a parent or a grandparent. This is the event of the year. And you're in Jerusalem. And you're there with all of this enthusiasm and excitement, commemorating, remembering the First Passover, that there is atonement, that there is forgiveness, that God graciously provides. It would have been something to experience, experience, something to see and add to the mix. Severe Roman oppression, add to the mix the longing and waiting for Messiah, the Christ, the King who the Bible promised would one day come and set everyone free of oppression that would bring deliverance. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, it would be this year. It would have been quite something to see. This morning, what we're going to do is enter into that setting in Matthew chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can find Matthew 21. And as we do so, we're going to see the so-called triumphal entry. It is very triumphant. And wonderful, but in another sense, he's going there to be crucified. And so sometimes people say the so-called triumphal entry. And we'll also see a bit different picture from Jesus. We'll see Jesus overturning the tables and condemning. I said the tax collectors first hour, but I think I was just thinking about contemporary politics. So not the tax collectors, the money changers. Sometimes it's so hard to keep things straight. So not the tax collectors. That would be Matthew uh, who's writing, but the money changers. And so we'll get quite the vision of Jesus today. Uh, And as we do so, I'm going to highlight five unmistakable actions. Jesus having these five unmistakable actions, and they all point to him being the Messiah. They all point to him being the Christ, the deliverer. And I hope they all point us to trust in him. And if you've trusted in him, that you keep trusting in him and you see that it's good and right and sane to be trusting in him. And I think that will be better for your next week and getting you through anything and everything than anything else I could possibly offer you. That he is the one, he's worthy of trust and devotion and we'll see it in these five unmistakable actions. If you're just joining us, we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. We find ourselves in this particular chapter. We've been having a great time being impressed with Jesus and I hope you find it to be a great time as well. We won't, we won't pre-read the passage because it would take too long. What we'll do is just begin. Number one, Jesus unmistakably demonstrates his sovereignty. He unmistakably demonstrates his sovereignty. And before we actually even get to verse one, what we're going to see is all of this happening according to plan. Or I should say this is what we have been seeing. Jesus has been to Jerusalem before. But he's also been saying, I must go to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be raised. He said it on more than one occasion. In fact, he's been saying it in different ways again and again and again. As I'm so fond of quoting the King James, King James translation of Luke's text, he had set his face toward Jerusalem. 
He is a man of destiny. He's not going to Jerusalem and he's not going to be there to be crucified because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It wasn't because of bad luck. The fact is he's going there and he's going there as the sovereign and it's according to plan. If you're new to the word sovereignty, think king. And with Jesus, we don't just have any king. We have the all-knowing, all-powerful, decreeing king. And if he says it's going to be like this, it's going to be like this. This is, this is a sovereign plan unfolding. And we're going to hear from, we're going to hear from Jesus just how it's going to happen. And then what? It's going to happen just like he says it's going to happen. Verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, if you'd prefer Bethphage, that's fine. We can both be friends. I have the Greek text on my side, but (laughs) to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Mark chapter 11, Mark's other camera angle account tells us that no one had ever ridden on it before. It's special, unique, preserved just for him. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So specific directions. Even It comes even with a password. So not only do you go, if you need the password, you use the password. And notice it says, and he will send them at once. So it's not, it might happen based upon my best hunch it might happen. I would even say with the risk of sounding like a false teacher, but I'll clarify. This is not based upon wisdom. Jesus is wise, don't get me wrong. But this is not based upon wisdom in the traditional sense. Wisdom would be, well, because of experience, I've done this enough times, I know that this is probably how it's going to work out. No, this isn't based upon wisdom. This is based upon sovereignty. This is based upon the fact that it's going to happen. This, I want you to do this, and this will happen. He's describing exactly what will happen before it ever happens. That's not based upon experience. That's based upon sovereignty. Not too long ago, when my youngest were a little bit younger than they are now, we were going to cross at the crosswalk on West Center Road at about 170-something in center. It's really busy there, lots of traffic. And before we stepped into the street, or before it turned white and said walk, I said, here's what we're going to do, boys. I said, when it says walk, we're not going to walk. We're not going to take a foot off the curb because this car right here on my left is going to run us over if we do. Because they're not going to see us. And even though we have the right of way as pedestrians, we're going to make sure that we're safe. Sure enough, it says walk. We don't step out. The car goes just like this. The car would have hit us. My boy said, Dad, it's like you know the future. See, that's based upon wisdom. That's based on it's almost happened before so many times that I have a pretty good hunch. This is not that. This is sovereignty. This is decree. This is before the foundation of the world this was going to happen. This is extraordinary with Jesus. 
This is happening on the Mount of Olives in that general region. Uh, maybe just a couple more things about that. If you stand on the Mount of Olives, you can, you can see the city. So it's a big city and a small city. And if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you can see it all. And there, if there were two million people there, we know there were many, but if there were two million people there, they wouldn't have all fit. So there's overflow in all the different towns and regions around them. It would have been something for Jesus to be there at the Mount of Olives and to say, here's what I want you to go and do. And we're going to see that that's what happens. We're going to skip verses 4 to 5 just momentarily uh, because verse 6 is where we pick up our our, our story. So verse 6 says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Mark's account informs us with these words. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. That's what we would expect. But just in case you were wondering, that's what happened. Then verse 7 says, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What's all this about? Well, it's Palm Sunday, don't you know? Well, it's not actually Palm Sunday, but that's where we celebrate Palm Sunday because of this. But what would have been customary at the time... This is a celebration. This is unique. This is special. What do we do when we have someone special coming? Well, we might say figuratively now, but it actually has a history. We roll out the red carpet. Dignitaries, significant people. We want it to be nice and special. Well, here they are for Jesus. They're, they're not rolling out the red carpet, but we have the palm branches because it's exciting. It's worship. Old Testament Leviticus chapter 23, New Testament Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. Not only that, there's an Old Testament precedent for doing this for a king. Second Kings chapter 9, verse 13, King Jehu, an Israelite king, uh, had something similar happen to him. And they take their garments and they put them under him. We will sacrifice to show honor because this is a special person. This is a king. So there actually is a long history from the culture to do these kinds of things if you think the person is special. Well, he's the sovereign. He's special, all right. I like what R. Kent Hughes said in his commentary on this passage. He says it so succinctly and so wonderfully. In all of this, we observe Jesus' Jesus painstaking premeditation. He had carefully ordered everything. The day and hour were selected from eternity with countdown perfection. And before we move on, I can't resist but to ask you, is the Jesus you believe in sovereign? Should be. I like it when we sing about Jesus that he commands my destiny. It's a pretty good lyric. You're not insane if you depend upon him to command your destiny. Because he knows all about destiny. He is the sovereign one, the powerful one, the all-wise one. And if he's sovereign in this, I can trust him to be sovereign for my eternal destiny. Let's move on to another one. Number two, Jesus unmistakably fulfills prophecy. He unmistakably fulfills prophecy. 
prophecy. Back to verses 4 and 5. Here we go in verse 4. This took place to fulfill. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That would be the prophet Zechariah from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Also perhaps informed by Isaiah 62, verse 11. Saying, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion. That's used in Isaiah chapter 1 to describe Israel. The daughter of Zion, they belong to Zion. They belong to Jerusalem. The daughter of Zion, that would be the Israelites. Say, say to the Israelites, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Why is this happening? It's happening for lots of reasons, but it's happening because there's a prophetic plan that's unfolding, and this is how it's supposed to be. I might even suggest it's not only because of a prophetic plan, but it's even a a fulfillment plan in this sense because there have been many other kings... And there have been many other kings who have even done things like come into the city on a donkey. In fact, David says that's how he wants his son Solomon to arrive, on his donkey. But we know that David wasn't the one to fulfill the promise, ultimately. We know that Solomon is not the one to fulfill the promise, ultimately. Jesus is the one to fulfill the promise ultimately. Our text describes it as fulfilled. But even if we were to go and look at those kings, we would say types and shadows in anticipation, imperfect, but there's similarities. For example, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, 38, 44, with Solomon arriving in a similar way, not exactly the same, but a similar way. The only thing else I want to say about the second one regarding fulfillment of prophecy is I I almost feel like making a confession. I I almost feel bad when I read Bible prophecies now because I don't have the same kind of enthusiastic, amazed, stunned, wow, like I did when I was a brand new Christian. Brand new Christian, you read about prophecies and you look up all these, all of these different prophecies in the Old Testament, New Testament, and it's like, what? This, this is incredible. I used to just be elated, like, I can't believe this is actually true and in the Bible, this is absolutely incredible. And then you learn more and now I say, this is credible. <laughs> I don't say things like incredible anymore. I say, this is credible. But now I expect it. I think both places are good to be. Brand new Christian, you're like, what, what, what is, what, are you kidding me? But the more you spend time with Jesus in his word, by the power of the spirit, here's a prophecy and it's fulfilled. What's for lunch? (laughs) You know, pass the salt. (laughs) And I don't mean to be sacrilegious at all, but I've just grown to trust him. And I, I, he's extraordinary in trust. But if it's prophesied, yeah, that's going to happen. Yep, it's going to happen. I've learned to expect nothing less. It's not a surprise. Number three, Jesus unmistakably elicits praise. Jesus unmistakably elicits, provokes praise from the people. If we go back to verse 8, we'll even see this 
in anticipation. Verse 8 says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, how in the world would I get praise out of that? Well, I would get praise out of that because you don't do that for just anybody. You do that for someone special. And so already we're seeing something is special here. Something is for, for kings, royalty, special people. But then verse 9 says, And the crowds that went before him that, and that followed him were shouting. Even the way it's put in the original language, they keep shouting. It's their state. They are, they're, they're busy shouting. And what are they shouting? Look there. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save, but it's more, uh, declarative. Oh, save. Save us. Save us. Save us. Save us. And who are they calling to save them? They're calling the one who is called son of David. And if you know much about anything from the Old Testament, again, we have to have the promise fulfilled. One would come in the line of David who would rule and reign forever. It won't be David and it won't be Solomon. It won't be any, it won't be any of the others. But one will be son of David. And here, oh, son of David, save us, save us, save us. I say a million times over and then some. I, I, I have it resonate and I say, yes. That's right. That's right. And I can't help myself. Here we are again, another sermon in Matthew. And guess what I'm going to remind you of? Chapter 1, verse 21. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, I'm not just making it up, always taking us back there. It's always meant to be that way. And here these people are connecting dots, if you will. He came to save and they're saying, Hosanna. Save us. Now, sometimes as Christians, we talk about being saved and uh, are you saved? When did you get saved? And those are fine and important things to talk about. But sometimes we don't even realize what we're, what we're saying, maybe. Just a little bit more um, depth and explanation. And if you've heard this a million times from me, sorry, not sorry. Deliver. Protect. Provide care for. See, this is what kings are supposed to do. Kings are to protect. Kings are to provide. Kings are to protect you from your enemies, deliver you from your enemies. And we know actually there's more involved because when we talk about being saved, saved from God's wrath, saved from sin and its effects, the the ultimate arch enemy, which is death and the devil. So make sure you're not turning your mind off when you think about save, deliver, That's what a king does. Sometimes he's called Lord. That's a kingly designation. Sometimes he's called Christ. That's a kingly designation. Or from the Old Testament, Messiah. That's a kingly designation. He is the Savior. And kings are supposed to be saviors. In the ancient world, and here in this ultimate sense. As you can tell, I get excited about this. This is is extraordinary. Blessed is he, it says in our verse, verse 9, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, Hosanna in the highest, the greatest. I don't even think they realize what they're saying. But if we're waiting for ultimate Messiah, it's save us in the ultimate greatest sense. Not temporal deliverance, ultimate deliverance. 
Leon Morris, probably the best commentator on the book of Matthew, I would think hands down, maybe there's one other close call, says they're delirious with praise. And they should be delirious with praise. There's never been anyone else like him. There have been other Christs, lowercase c, other messiahs, lowercase m, other lords, lowercase l, other kings, lowercase k. You get the idea. Hosanna in the highest. He's the one. Jerusalem is now at attention. It's so intense that now Jerusalem is paying attention. And I put it that way because before we, before we read verse 10, if you have all of those people, it would be easy to be overlooked if you just had a little party going on. If you just had a little sect and a little something over here and a little something over here, maybe something kind of extraordinary, you're still going to be overwhelmed by the masses. So it's bigger than that because verse 10 says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Saying So they were making enough of a commotion for the whole city to be paying attention. Word is out. And they say, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And some try to take cheap shots in the name of scholarship and their lame scholars let it be on the record as saying that Jesus was only a prophet. They were never claiming that he was the Messiah. It doesn't fit the context. If he's the son of David, that, that, that's a, such a lame argument. People pay money at, at universities to be taught such things. Uh, <laughs> crazy. And if we look at the cross-references in John's account explicitly, the king of Israel. They're not saying, well, he's just a prophet. No, he is a prophet. In fact, he is, so he's not less than a prophet. He's called the prophet, one who speaks authoritatively from God. But what they're asking is, who are you saying is the Messiah? Who are you saying is the son of David? Who are you saying is the king? And they respond by saying, we're saying that the Messiah is the prophet from Nazareth. That's what's happening here. It's exciting stuff. If you recall, Nazareth was... Nowhere, McNowheresville, okay? Um, a hamlet, a little, little place. So some would not have been impressed by this. They would think, what good thing could come from there? But they're saying, we're praising him, the one who's come from there. He came from Nazareth. So do you think all of these people praising were believers? Maybe it's kind of a tricky question. It's easy for us on the other side to understand things better. But when we're only looking at this, it kind of looks like the crowds were because they, now Israel has the attention saying, who, who are you guys praising? But we do know what happens in chapter 27. And I don't know who was with who and on whichever side, and I'm not going to claim to do that. But they do cry something else other than Hosanna in the highest. What do they cry out? They say, crucify him. And it seems like with equal or rival tenacity. Now, the positive thing is then after the resurrection, we do hear gospel preaching in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And for example, the apostle Peter is preaching to those who said, crucify him. And many are converted. 
because they understand things better. But right here, we're still in the thick of things. But even a, a stop clock is right twice a day. So even if they're unbelievers, Hosanna to God and to glory to God in the highest, they're saying the right thing. They definitely are. Okay, let's keep moving. Number four, Jesus unmistakably humbles himself. Jesus unmistakably humbles himself. Look again with me, if you would, because I don't want us to miss this, uh, back to verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, say to the Israelites, Behold your king. So that's not very, that does, that's not a humble word. That's an exalt, exaltation word. Behold your king. And we were just emphasizing that. But let's keep going and see, is coming to you humble. So king and humble. Uh, they, they, that looks like, that looks like an apparent paradox. That, that, to the untrained eye or ear, that, that causes the eyebrow to go up. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So when we read it, we, we would tend to think, rightfully so, in a king, behold your king, and he's on a white stallion, or, or, or in a chariot, victorious, conquering. But he's on the beast of burden. Looks more like a servant, a servant animal. And he does even use the word humble. The king who's humble seems kind of strange. But I'm going to use another synonym for strange. Seems kind of holy. Holy means different. For shock value, I like to say, when you sing holy, 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 you're singing strange, strange, strange. And I don't mean to be sacrilegious. Different, different, different. Otherly, otherly, otherly. And when we're talking about Jesus, while we've had other kings, he's different from all of them. He's the humble king. Hard to find a point of reference for that. Maybe there have been semi-humble kings. But here we have the unique, ultimate one who protects his people, provides for his people, conquers their foes, ultimately, including death, protects, delivers, all of those wonderful things. And he does so as a servant. And even the greatest king ever has had less than perfectly pure motives. Here, he is going to be, remember chapter 20, I didn't come here to be served, which is what you do with kings. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, ultimate act of service. Jesus is the Messiah worthy of your trust, worthy of your devotion and confidence because he is utterly and entirely different. He won't do what he does to somehow manipulate you. Never. Utterly different and unique. This is why Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes about this very reality of him being the humble one. He humbles himself. He does what he does, what he does on our behalf. And it's true, he's highly exalted as a result. I don't know what to, to, to liken that to. I, I don't know who, uh, who I can say. And you know, so therefore he's sort of like this person. And you know, if you've seen the movie, I'm not going there. 
There's no one like him. No one like him. He's different. But when he returns in Revelation chapter 19, he does come on a white horse. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Even that isn't going to happen apart from him, Philippians chapter 2, Matthew chapter 21, being the humble king, the unique king. Well, before we go on to number five, maybe just a couple of interesting things to think about when it comes to this matter of him being this king. The humble king. Now let's move on to number five. Number five. Jesus unmistakably refuses to ignore unrighteousness. Jesus unmistakably refuses to ignore unrighteousness. Now we're going to move from triumphal entry... And now we're going to move to turning the tables over and we're going to see the lowly, meek and mild, humble Jesus, not in contradiction, but in perfect complement. And now we're going to see the angry Jesus. And maybe I'll put it this way, the awfully angry Jesus. And I mean that in the right sense. I mean that in the right sense. So this is contrary to pop culture Jesus. This is contrary to Hollywood Jesus. This is contrary to the Jesus that we would ever come up with in our own minds. And, and humble, furious, if I can use that word. Because if he's furious, he's under perfect self-control furious. He doesn't fly off the handle. Perfectly executed, righteous indignation, we say. And it's impressive. It's really impressive. So the Prince of Peace is unique. Let's go ahead and read it, how he responds to these people I'm going to call spiritual hijackers. And it is quite something to see. Verse 12 says, And Jesus entered the temple. Remember Passover packed all kinds of things happening. The Passover of all Passovers in one sense, we would say because of the man of destiny who's there. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who bought all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Yikes! In his fury, in his anger, and I'm going to, going to suggest to you it's because he loves his people and he loves the truth, and so he's going to do what he does because of that, not just because he didn't have a bad day, but because... We will see things that become spiritually perverse and people are therefore cut off from the true knowledge of God and he will have no part of it. Why is he so angry? If you see verse 13, you'll see why he's so angry. He said to them, it is written, my house. That's noteworthy. Quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7. It's God's house. Jesus says, my house. Why do you think? Let's keep going. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. 
from Jeremiah chapter 7. So before we get into the, to, to the details of those things, maybe we should first make an observation, and that is one that I'd never thought about up until studying the Bible seriously. The problem isn't with the fact that there's money associated with the temple. Okay, so the problem is not that there's money associated with the temple, even though it might be first blush problem. And I say that because in chapter 17, there's a temple tax, and Jesus does not condemn the temple tax. Not only that, Roman and Greek currency has to be converted to the current currency. So no foul there if you have to have the right currency and they're offering a service, if you will. And not only that, if you traveled from far away, and let's make it more personal, and it's you and your spouse and your three children and one on the way, it's hard. You're, you're going to bring a sacrifice? Yes, you have to. Oh, but out of love and compassion and thoughtfulness, perhaps, when it first started, they'll just sell them there. A lot easier to carry some coins than it is to carry animals. It's, it's quite likely, scholars think, if you're being sympathetic, may have started off that way. And I think there's something about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. <laughs> well, however it started out, it's not that, it's not that now. Okay. Maybe it started off as a good thing and a positive thing and, and a service, but now it's gone from a service to a circus. Now, now it's perverse. Now it's awful. And Jesus is really, really, really upset with the whole thing. And he calls it a den of robbers. And if we look at the cross-reference text, we might have some better insight as to why he would do that. Mark chapter 11 says this, different camera angle. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Isaiah 56 verse 7, same thing. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Another way of saying all the nations. So Jesus says it was supposed to serve a certain purpose. And now it can't serve that purpose anymore. This is a den of robbers. This is awful. You've hijacked this and made it something it's not meant to be. So yes, they could be overcharging and manipulating and controlling and taking advantage of their fellow Jews. But not only that, explicitly in the cross-reference text, Jesus is angry because it is no longer having a ministry to the Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Gentiles are non-Jews. The nations, they've lost sight of this. There is a court of the Gentiles. But now things are so perverse, Jesus is angry. Jesus is upset because it's no longer what it was designed to be for them. And we have to speculate a little bit here, but think with me about how this would look. If you have the temple where you go and meet with God extraordinarily, according to his prescription, that's good. That's positive geared toward primarily the people of Israel. But even that, in its goodness, included the court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles could come, and they could observe true worship. They could come and learn about the one true and living God, in contrast to their many gods, the gods of the nations. 
They could come and learn the truth. They could come and hear the truth. They could come and watch true worship. And now they can't. Now they can't because it's become a business. And now, how about this? The religion of the people of Israel as practiced then doesn't really look any different in a lot of ways from the religion of the nations. And Jesus will have none of it. They've forgotten. Even when Israel begins Genesis chapter 12, Father Abraham, there's actually a plan and an intention to include Gentiles. One more thing about that before we move on. Jesus is called in John chapter 2, he calls himself the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days what? I'll raise it up. So, think with me about this. Which one's the ultimate temple? The temple built in Jerusalem or Jesus? Jesus is going to be the ultimate one. Don't, Don't get your theology backward. Some people have it backward. He's the ultimate place where you meet with God. The ultimate official meeting with God place, the temple. So what Jesus is condemning is the shadowy passing away temple that had become corrupt and perverse and unrecognizable. So what you don't want if you're Jesus is for people to think somehow that is now you just a better version. Let's set the record straight. This is not what it was designed to be at the beginning. It was designed to be something good, temporary, but good, to serve a good purpose. And then I'm going to be the ultimate. I'm going to be the substance, shadow to substance. And so Jesus has to be clear, I believe, to say, I'm not the better version of that. This is a fiasco. And he pronounces condemnation upon it and drives them out. He calls it my house, and it doesn't look like his house anymore. It looks like something altogether different. Before we move on, uh, we probably should make a couple points of application about this. I know ultimate application is he's truly the Messiah. Trust him. It's the best application. But let's do know that while we're in a different age, Old Covenant temple, New Covenant Jesus temple, so it's not apples to apples, but it is the same Jesus. And so I don't think it's um, asking for too much to say, we should learn something in the era we live in about how Jesus thinks about false or false religion or the true religion when it becomes corrupted. So I think there's a lesson here for us as the church, in other words, is what I'm getting at. Let's know that these people were part of the right religion with the right book and things went awful or awfully. It's possible to have it happen. And if you've been alive very long and a Christian very long or not even a Christian, all you have to do is turn on the television or do some simple searches or watch the news and you will see and I will see that so many terrible, awful, disgusting, perverse things happen in the name of Christ. 
whether it's manipulation of emotions or manipulation through money, corruption, the list goes on and on and on, and we should know how Jesus feels about it. It's not good. And I think it should give each of us um, reason for pause. We can be attached to him, use his name. We can be part of what he has said he would build and bless and be in a terrible, terrible place of corruption. Jesus is angry with such people. I say, God help us, and I don't mean that flippantly, literally. They were to be about hope and Mercy and grace extended even to the godless. But when the godless then can look at them and say, what's the difference? It's not good. Okay, let's wrap things up here. Uh, Verse 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, presumably the outer court, because they weren't allowed in the inner, and, and he healed them. So he delivered them. That would be a temporary, temporal, yet important, merciful, compassionate deliverance. He healed them. He has the power to do that. He'll have the power to provide ultimate, ultimate healing in his, in his resurrection. And then verse 15 says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, so let's stress wonderful, they see wonderful, right there before their very eyes, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David! They, the religious leaders, were indignant. And so, notice, wonderful, indignant. When you call the wonderful, or when you appraise the wonderful with indignation, we know who's in the wrong of all of this. Then verse 16 says, And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Something you don't want to hear from Jesus. These are the religious experts. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What's unfolding before your very eyes is the plan and purpose of God for Messiah to be revealed and shown. You guys may have gotten letters behind your names when you went to seminary, but... You're quacks. Verse 15 says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, I know we already read it, but I wanted you to see the last part. Hosanna to the son of David. Notice they're, they're praising Jesus. Hosanna, God deliver us. He's the one who can do it. Then verse 17 says, And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. And he goes and he lodges there because perfect timing for all of this. And the Passover lamb is lodging in Bethany before he goes and gives himself up for us. He will be crucified at the hands of evil, sinful people and they'll be held accountable. But we also know we have it on good authority from the Bible. He will give himself up for us. He's going to be sovereign to the very end. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a brief time in your word together. 
build us up and edify us and strengthen us spiritually so that we might live for your honor and for your glory. Thank you for the fact that Jesus did, in fact, as we will see, go to the cross to make perfect atonement for sin so that we can have forgiveness, so that we can have certainty regarding our eternal destiny because we have an ultimate deliverer. And we're thankful to know that his name is Jesus, none other than the one who is now resurrected, none other than the one who has now ascended and is seated as the King of kings and Lord of lords. May we live for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.